Welcome, listeners, to a realm where shadows dance and whispers echo. I'm your host, Rick Clifton, and this is Quills and Chills, the podcast that brings you face-to-face with the masterminds behind the macabre. In each episode, we journey into the minds of horror writers and filmmakers to uncover the secrets lurking within their tales of terror. From classic tales to modern nightmares, we'll traverse the corridors of the human psyche and unravel the threads of dread that keep us turning the pages or sitting out there in the dark. Welcome to Quills and Chills. Hello and welcome back to Quills and Chills. My name is Rick Clifton. I'm your host. And today we are talking with author Elizabeth Hand. Liz is the best-selling author of 20 genre-spanning novels and five collections of short fiction and essays. Her work has received multiple Shirley Jackson, World Fantasy, and Nebula Awards, among many, many other honors. Today, Liz is here to talk with us about her latest book, A Haunting on the Hill, which is officially a sequel to Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And can I tell you, I was so, so excited to get my hands on this book. Uh, it is available now everywhere. And so welcome to the show, Liz. Great. Thank you so much, Rick. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm so glad that you got your hands on the book. <laughs> uh, I was very, very excited to dive into this. But before we get started, I would love to actually talk to you a little bit about you. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? I think you live in Maine. Is it? Is it? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, I do. I live in Maine, rural Maine on the on the coast. Not, I am not on the coast. I'm a few miles inland, but the part of Maine that just got hammered by the back to back storms last week and. I've been here for, I think this will be my 36th year, which is longer than I've ever lived anywhere. And I also, I go back and forth to London a lot because my partner lives there. So my partner of 26 years, 28 years. So I kind of, you know, go between rural Maine and an urban place to kind of get my urban fix. But I grew up in New York, in the New York metro area, and I lived in D.C. for 14 years before I moved here. So I kind of have a a foot in both camps, you know, the sort of wilderness and the the gritty city. But I find that I I enjoy and need both of them to to work and live. I so relate to that. I'm actually from North Carolina, and I'm from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so, like you said, like where you are in Maine, it is that is the opposite for me. That's where I grew up. That's <clears throat> that's sort of where my roots are. But uh, now I'm in Los Angeles, so I much prefer the city myself and the the city life. But there is, I find myself, like you said, at times needing both. So nice, nice balance. So yeah. I know you've talked about this before, but I'm just so fascinated by it. The fact that you used to work at the Smithsonian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's pretty amazing in and of itself. But I know that you've also, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that inspired some of your earlier work and stories and series. And I wonder if you could just briefly talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, I worked at the Smithsonian for... I think, uh, I don't remember how many years, many years in the late 70s and early 80s until shortly before I moved to Maine. 
I kind of fell into it by mistake. I was living, you know, went to university in DC, was living there and the National Air and Space Museum opened in 1976 for the bicentennial. And I got a job there about a year later. I think a friend of mine was working there and I got like the lowest level job you can get. You know, government jobs are all GS1, government service one up to whatever, you know, the president. And people always say, is there such a thing as a GS1? Well, that's what I was. I, I started as a GS1. Although they, we, we were called I, IS1 for institution. But yeah, so I started there and they had an, a gallery where they had link trainers, which were flight simulators. And they had three of them. And they had a bunch of us who were like, you know, supposed to be the flight instructors. So basically tourists would wait an ungodly long amount of time to get a few minutes on the link trainers with people who basically, you know, I mean, we'd taken some classes and stuff, but we were nothing. <laughs> None of us knew anything or, or a few of us, I guess, knew something about flying a plane, but I certainly did not. Anyway, that's how I started. And then after a few years, I got promoted up to the archives, the photo archives, which was upstairs. And that was a much more interesting job. And I, I worked there until I pretty much until I moved up here to Maine. That. Uh, I know you also uh, describe yourself as a punk rocker. I myself am a fan of music. I love all music. Uh, I'm wondering, though, do you have, is there a favorite artist that you're listening to right now in your rotation, whether it's punk rock or any other genre? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I have not been listening to a lot just because I've been caught up with the holidays and family and then Last week I was teaching, uh, I do an MFA teaching gig once a year. So I did that. So I'm just now back home and going to be getting settled into working on a new novel. And the soundtrack for that is probably going to be a lot of music from the 1920s because that's when it's set. <laughs> and I, I have very Catholic lowercase c taste in music. So kind of goes all over the place. And I tend to, when I'm working on something, focus on music that feeds into that. For for Haunting on the Hill, it was a lot of folk music, traditional folk music and murder ballads and some music for by a young American folk singer named Fern Maddie, M-A-D-D-I-E, who I name check in the, the back of the book because she's really fantastic. So yeah, so I kind of bounce around. I'm not, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be listening to next. We have a really great alternative music community radio station here. So a lot of my listening comes from that. And it's just sort of like whatever the great DJs on WERU play, I, I'm listening. That's the music I'm listening to. Uh, that's fantastic. I love that. Uh, I am very much the same way. I'm a very eclectic music case, as I uh, often try to describe. Um, last question, then we'll dive into the book. Uh, do you have a favorite scary story from your childhood? Oh, like one that I read? <laughs> one that, that I read or heard or, yeah, exactly. Actually, the scariest story I ever heard was probably one of the first ones, which was when we were on a camping trip to, to Maine, Maine and the, Mar the Canadian Maritimes. I don't remember where we were, but my family was camping somewhere for a few days. I was about seven or eight years old. And I met this girl 
And the two of us sort of spent the day together down by, I don't know, wandering around the campground by the lake and the woods and whatever. And she told me this story that it seemed to take hours for her to recount it. It probably took maybe, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe it was an hour. It seemed to take forever. It was so enthralling. And I was just completely captivated by it. And then within a couple of years, I was reading Edgar Allan Poe, the short stories, and I realized the story she had told me was her version of the pit and the pendulum. <laughs> and I have to I have to say that Poe's version was was great, but it, it kind of lacked something that this girl's rendition had. It was really it was quite amazing. Of course, I never saw her again. I have no idea who she was, where she went, whatever. But she kind of helped. You know, I was sort of already on my path because I love monster movies and scary stories and stuff like that. But she really kind of nailed it for me. Yeah. So I, I would say maybe that 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 was a favorite. Well, let's talk about this amazing book of yours called A Haunting on the Hill, shall we? Let's start with, can you just give us sort of the the elevator pitch, the overview into the world of A Haunting on the Hill and maybe the inspiration behind it and why you decided to tell the story? Well, I was uh, approached by the Jackson family. I, I, they'd actually gotten in touch with me maybe nine years ago now to do a follow-on to The Haunting of Hill House, and for various reasons, it didn't come through then. And then during the course of the pandemic, um, I was again approached by their the agent who represents the estate, who I'd spoken with earlier, and we decided the time was right. So he and I and Shirley Jackson's son, Lawrence, hashed out some ideas uh, over the course of several Zoom meetings and I said, well, what about a group of actors who end up being, you know, sort of marooned in, in Hill House for several days? And everybody said, oh, that sounds great. So I, I love performers. I love writing about performers of all, of all types and artists of all types. So I thought that Hill House would be a very, it would be a really good place to basically get a small group of theater people together and watch them become totally unraveled, which which could happen even without the intervention of, of Hill House. But I felt like, you know, Hill House would be just enough to kind of push them over the edge. <laughs> Not that they needed too much help. I, I could definitely see uh, how it could go without the intervention of Hill House. Like you said, it could very easily go uh, over the edge, just like you said. You know, one of the things that's probably one of my most favorite aspects of this book, uh, and being a fan of Shirley Jackson's uh, original novel, and um, even a fan of uh, the, uh, maybe not all of them great, but the iteration, the the film iterations and the film adaptations of the story as well. I think one of my favorite aspects of this book is how you stay true to the original story, and yet at the same time, you kept it very much your own, and it's very original, you know, from your point of view. And it really kind of left an impression. Left the question for me is like, how did you find the process of writing a sequel to such an amazing literary classic? Was that did you find that stressful going in, overwhelming? I mean, what what was that process like for you? Well, it's a good question. I, I, when I said yes to the project. I, I would not have said yes if I didn't think I could pull it off. And and I think I did. You know, the reviews were all great. The reception was really good. So I'm, I'm not saying that to blow my own horn. It's just that, I, you know, it would have been really bad if I had failed because I would have failed in a big, very public way. 
So I was very conscious of that going in, but I thought, you know, I can do this. I know her work intimately. I love her work. I actually know the area around North Bennington where, where she lived and where she wrote it. And so I just felt that I had, I would have solid footing as I entered Hill House. But I, I did make a deliberate decision not to have it be a sequel in a sense that there's a carryover of any characters or, you know, actual events from the early book, the previous book, although of course there's some kind of references and Easter eggs in there for people familiar with it. I, I really, and, and there's quite a few echoes, but I wanted it to be a standalone book. So if somebody hadn't read The Haunting of Hill House and they read this and they liked it, that they would go back to the original. And, you know, the reverse was true as well, that people who had, lived, you know, loved the original would read this and enjoy reading it as, as an homage to Jackson's work. So, but, you know, it was definitely intimidating. I was very aware of the the pressure that if it had not gone well, it would have not gone well in a in a very public way. But I, I felt like I was really I was really lucky. And I also, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I spent a lot of time uh going through the book again with a uh, you know, paperback copy and highlighting stuff about the, the actual layout of the house because I just wanted to feel very comfortable insofar as anybody could ever feel comfortable in Hill House, but I wanted to feel like I knew my way around it, you know, psychologically as well as geographically, that I knew the layout of the house, that I sort of knew where the, you know, the dark places were, where the cold places, the cold spots were. So, but yeah, it, um, it was definitely a challenge, but I feel very happy that I, that I did it. And I feel very relieved that, <laughs> that it came off as, as well as it did. It it turned out great, and uh, you've actually mentioned a couple of things that sort of sets up my next couple of questions <clears throat> for you. Uh, the first one being, you know, uh, to this point, and you mentioned it, the, it was very well received, and they, you received a lot of uh, quotes, a lot of which are highlighted on the back cover uh, of the book, But and I went through all of them, and I pulled out my favorite, and it happens to be from Paul Tremblay, and it's, it's the lines of paranoia, art, and reality are terrifyingly blurred for a group of hungry and damaged actor, actors that are cloistered together within the moldering walls of Hill House. <laughs> and he goes on with uh, with obviously a lot more, but he 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 is exactly right and that it's just it's the perfect blend for me of exactly what you said in that it is very original and standalone but yet it is at the same time an homage to the original and does such a great you know job of sort of honoring the original material. So without giving away too much, is there for you a, a favorite or a pivotal moment that readers should look forward to in the book? I have, there are several and I have several. <laughs> well, with, I mean, I don't know if it's giving anything away because it's cited so much and it's been used in the advertising, but the there's a pivotal scene kind of, it's, I don't know how early it actually is page-wise in the book, but it's sort of, it's feels early in the house's, you know, kind of takeover of the characters when they are gathered in the living room for the first read through of the play. And they've been told not to, not to start a fire in the fireplace because the chimneys have not been cleaned and, you know, the insurance won't cover it. And of course they start a fire in the fireplace and something very unexpected happens. <laughs> So I think that was kind of one of those scenes that 
come to me exactly out of nowhere. There, there was something that inspired it. But when I wrote that scene, I remember thinking, ah, is this, you know, is this going to be like too much and too weird? Or is it going to be just weird enough? <laughs> and I think it was just weird enough because people really seemed to like it. But, but I do remember thinking like, I don't know, this might be just a little too, I don't know, might have been a little bit too sideways. But ultimately, I felt like it worked. But it was not something I didn't go into the book, you know thinking, oh, I'm going to write that scene and then have it be, a, you know, have it be a motif through the rest of the book. But it ended up being being that. It definitely worked, Liz. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it's great. Thank uh, you. It was fantastic. It's really, really great. And you mentioned this as well earlier, but in writing the sequence, you, you referenced the original novel without necessarily getting too deep into it. And Maybe this, and there are a lot of like, sort of, like you said, Easter egg moments that I picked up on. And I think other fans of Hill House will as well. But you also made a sort of very light reference to another family in the 80s. And I caught that, although you didn't go too deep into it. And I gotta ask, would that be the Cranes from Mike Flanagan's version of it? And if not, that's totally fine. But I was like, that was the first thing I thought of. And I was like, well, I think that was based in late 80s, early 90s. So I was kind of curious. Well, it was not. Only because <laughs> I I saw the first episode of Mike Flanagan's series. And and I loved it. I know that This reminds me that I need to go back and, and watch the rest of it. But I, I saw the first episode and it was great. But... It was before I had started work on my own book. And I thought, you know what? I can't watch this because I don't want to be influenced by it. I want to be able to say in good conscience that I've not seen it. So I haven't really seen it. And I don't even remember, you know, I, I don't remember if there was any backstory in that episode or not. So, no, I, I was just kind of thinking more of, I don't know, the kind of classic, what the wave of classic 1980s paperback horror books that, that Grady Hendrix has written so well about and also has kind of written and riffed on in his own fiction. So I, I was I was thinking more like that about that sort of thing. So I wish I could say that it was a clever homage or shout out to somebody <laughs> somebody else, but it, it was kind of done in a much more um, generalized uh, spirit. I think again, I think for me it's just because I'm such a fan of the of the source material and because I'm such a fan of Mike Flanagan, uh, I would recommend going to watch the series now that the book is done, um, just because I think he did such an amazing version of it for himself. It's definitely not a a retelling of Shirley Jackson's novel. It's got the Mike Flanagan spin to it, but I just thought it was really great. So and um so when I saw that, I was like, but like I said, it was it was very brief and and you just kept it moving and I thought that was great. I love how you you did that. You didn't you didn't live too long in it you, the, because this was your story and you had your story to tell. And I thought that was fantastic. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, I do. I I thoroughly intend to go back and watch the rest of it. Have to figure out what streaming platform it's on now. I think it's on Netflix still. I watched Is it, it still. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just before the holidays, I, I I watched it after I finished your book, and I was like, oh, I have to go back now and watch this. So I think it's still there. So I will okay, say it was good. there before the holidays. So go with that. <laughs> so 
All right. So in the process of writing this book, I'm kind of curious because I'm sure it happens uh, with with everything and everything that you, everything you do. But did you encounter any challenges that surprised you, or any discoveries, or anything that might have changed the direction of what you originally had? I find that quite a bit myself when I'm working on things. Like I have one idea in mind, and I get about a quarter of the way into it, and I'm like, ah. Now I got to go a hard right from this because this just would be amazing. So, well, it was in some ways no, and in other ways yes that I I kind of went off piste with it. You know, the thing with a a haunted house story, certainly a classic haunted house story, is essentially it boils down to a group of people goes into a haunted house, bad stuff happens and they don't all make it out again or you know maybe they make it out again but they've been irreversibly changed or traumatized or whatever by their experience so i knew going into it that i would have these four characters and only three of them would come out you know would get out alive basically and i knew i kind of knew what the you know i knew what the ending was going to be like in a general way but there were other there were certainly things that would just come to me out of nowhere, you know, like the chimney thing earlier. There were other things that came up, you know, like what Stevie finds in his room and, you know, niece's experience and behind the, you know, closed off door and locked off part of the house. That Some of those I, I kind of had a an inkling beforehand that I would play with that. But for the most part, it was just sort of sitting down every day and just letting the characters explore go deeper and deeper into the house. And I went with them to find out what they discovered there. You know, having said that, I I had to keep playing around with who was, you know, who was going to be the victim. I mean, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that, you know, somebody doesn't make it out. But, you know, so I kept taking turns like oh it could be this character it could be this one it could be this one it could be this one it could be all of them it could be two of them and then I you know my daughter actually gave me I told her you know the character I originally thought would would go and she was like no you can't do that <laughs> and I said all right I'll think about it <laughs> so then I had to kind of rethink it and I, I and I think it worked out well the way I had it but but yeah, it was, you know, it was basically, I felt like I had the template there and it was just coming up with the details and the, and the characterization to let each character kind of have their own form of paranoia or nightmare or trauma that is affecting them, you know, that they bring into Hill House and then Hill House, which really is the only character that's, a, you know, a right. carryover from from the original book. I look at Hill House as a character, and so you know Hill House is able to kind of uh, prey upon their weaknesses. So they bring you know their baggage with them. As the character says early on, the real the realtor, real estate agent who rents them the house, says you know people bring their baggage into Hill House, and you know whatever happens there has nothing to do with Hill House. It has to do with them. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> well, that is so spot on. And that was one of my comments too, is that I feel like that I wanted to talk a little bit about the care the characters as well, because I adore them all. 
but as you said, Hill House is, in my opinion, the main character and will always be sort of the main character, you know, but they all come with the sort of their both, pardon the pun, their internal and their external ghosts, I guess, if you will, their own baggage. I, I love them all. I, I love Holly. I love Nisa. I love Amanda. She's an absolute handful. Amanda surprised me. I, I thought for sure she was going to be one thing. And by the end, she ended up being something different from what I what I sort of expected. But I got to say, the one that stole my heart has got to be Stevie. Stevie. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I can't. For me, I felt there was a little bit more of an innocence with him in, in, a, in a way. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe maybe that wasn't the intention, but that was the way I received it. So I just thought they were all great. Makes me curious. Do you, and I know this is like asking a, a mother to pick her favorite child, but do you have <laughs> a favorite character or one that you connected with overall? Well, I also love Stevie. He was a lot of fun to create and play with. But, you know, all of the characters were fun to, they were all fun to write. You know, I, I felt like Stevie, as you said, he's kind of more of an innocent. He, he has this sort of childlike nature, which is a bit at odds with, even though he's, you know, two of the others, Nisa and Holly are two of his closest friends. You know, he, he's just a little more, as you say, innocent, although not naive. But, I, you know, it was funny because there was a couple of, you know, I don't really, I mean, I read the trade reviews of my work, but I don't really read much, you know, I don't read like amateur reviews very much. But I came across one somewhere and, and or a couple of them, and they were talking about how the characters were, they found them unlikable, which I thought was, I thought it was odd because one, you know, just the notion of writing characters who are only likable to me it's just the most boring, I would rather, you know, eat ground glass, but that's like the most boring thing in the world as a writer to think about writing likable characters. But I felt like they were all, you know, they were flawed, but I felt that they were just kind of like regular people. You know, I think all of us in the wrong light under the wrong circumstances could be unlikable. And, and certainly Hill House would bring that out. But I, I enjoyed writing all of them. You know, they were fun. Amanda, as you said, is kind of a ham. And she had, you know, it was interesting to have her sort of shift in my mind and her role in the story to shift a little bit by the end. But they were all really fun to write. Holly, you know, I was able to kind of graft some of my own experiences as a failed playwright onto Holly's experiences. And with Nisa, I was able to take, you know, some of the, you know, the love that I, I'm not a performer. I'm certainly not a singer or a musician at all, but take some of my love that I have for people who are performers and singer songwriters and musicians and project that onto Nisa and imagine, you know, her and what, you know, what her arc would be, what her journey would be. So it was, you know, it was fun to write all of them. It really was. It, it was a lot of, you know, it was just very enjoyable. I felt kind of bad for putting them through all that stuff, but you know, <laughs> they knew the job was dangerous when they took it. <laughs> exactly, they knew, in a sense, they knew what they were walking into, and then and then they were, well, again, not to give spoilers away, but they were given choices throughout the story to leave, and they chose to stay. So you know, well, um, right, exactly, <clears throat> yeah. But uh, yeah, I just, I even the secondary characters, Ivadni the neighbor is. Probably, as far as secondary characters go, really one of my favorite 
especially <laughs> from the beginning with the first time we meet her. And I'm like, okay, I love her. I love her already. She is straight up and down my neighbor. I just, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I loved her too. I, I, I really, I would have liked to have given her and the other, two of the other women, secondary characters in the book. I would have liked them to play a bigger role. And I had originally thought of that, but then it just, it, it wasn't going to work for this particular book. If it ever gets developed into a, a series or a movie, I hope somebody, I hope somebody gives Evadne, you know, uh, a bigger role because she, she was also a lot of fun to write. <laughs> I love it. So in the, inside the world of horror, I feel like horror is often sort of a mirror or an allegory for life. And I think, especially in terms of Hill House and sort of what we've talked about and how the house itself sort of preys upon the baggage and the problems that you bring into the house, it sort of really amplifies them in a way. I'm kind of curious if you feel there is sort of this sort of, what do you want your readers to sort of walk away from and what sort of that impact it should have on them? Hmm. That's a great question. I can, you know, to be honest, I, when I write horror or supernatural fiction or things that, you know, that are horror adjacent, I really just hope that I could scare people or give, you know, give them a, a sense of profound unease, you know, and that to me is the best thing that I can do. And, and that makes me very happy when I'm able to do that, if I'm able to do that. You know, I know there's some stories of mine where I've done it really effectively. And I, I know that it works and I've heard from readers and reviewers and I, you know, I know it works from other people's perspective. So I'm really happy when that, ha when that occurs. It doesn't always happen. There's sometimes when I write things that I'm like, eh, I didn't do it. You know, I blew it, whatever reason I wasn't able to carry it off. But I love Robert Aikman's work. And so in some of my fiction, I tend to go for the more understated kind of unease that he has, like Mir Zenner was sort of an homage to Aikman. And I like playing with that. But with this, it's in more of a, um, it's in more of a major key, you know, Hill House, you have to kind of go for the bigger, scarier stuff. So I hope that people were unsettled by it and and creeped out by it so i mean that that may seem like not a really you know not a giant leap for all mankind but that really is what i that really is what i i hope the impact comes down to so you know you did something in in your novel that a lot of writers do but not a lot of writers do and movies aren't often famous for it either but i loved it and it's the epilogue and why i love the epilogue is because while you could have very easily have just left us right at the end, right at the very last chapter there, you know, with how you went out, which I thought was brilliant. That last sentence is spot on. But the epilogue sort of gives us sort of, this is the impact months later or over a period of time later. And I just love that. So I just, I, I, I always like to see how our characters changed. By their experiences in a story and i feel like you 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 showed us that so not a question it was just more me saying thank you for that yeah well no th so. and thank you for for saying that i i do have to acknowledge that shirley jackson had a brief epilogue in the haunting of hill house mm -hmm. so when i got to the end of my book i thought 
I wanted to echo, you know, the beginning, the very beginning and the very end of, of my novel uh, are, you know, that that's those are the times when I really did deliberately rip and make an effort to, you know, kind of show the influence of, of the original novel. But when I got to the end, I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I should do what you did. I should have an epilogue here. So mine is a little bit longer than hers, but that that was another sort of nod to to what she had done in her novel. Yeah, I thought it was great. So so to sort of change directions a little bit, I realize this is probably a question you get quite a bit, but I just love this question because it always sort of gives me more more food for my bookshelf, I guess, if you will. But even beyond the world of horror, are there any authors or any other voices that you're reading or listening to right now that you're kind of a fan of? Well, it's totally different from any horror that I've been reading, but I in part because it sort of reflects the, the book that I'm researching and going to work on now. I really fell down a rabbit hole reading the work of Nancy Mitford, who wrote uh, The Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate and The Blessing. She was one of the uh, Mitford sisters who were famous and infamous during the 1920s and 30s and 40s and fascinating family, British family, English family. So anyway, her novels are really funny and beautifully written. So I just kind of devoured those. And then because her book, those two books at least, were inspired by uh, real people. And she, you know, doing some research and reading biographies, I was able to find out who those real people were. So I fell down a rabbit hole reading about them, which I can do, you know, in the name of research. And so, yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been reading about Lord Berners, who was a, you know, a, a noted, renowned English eccentric in the, in the old school in the early and mid 20th century in the UK. And he was just a fabulous character to read about. So he was also a composer. So his music is some of the music that I've been listening to. He was very, he um, admired his work immensely, which is kind of strange because when you listen to it, it doesn't sound like something Stravinsky would, would like. But yeah, so that, that's mostly what I've been doing. I'm trying to think what else. I just started reading Matt Cheney's has a novella that came in the mail today and it literally just came into my hands. So I don't remember the title of it but i started reading it a few hours ago and i love it so anyway it's great it's set in new, in new hampshire and in the woods and it's it's creepy and, and really beautifully written so i'm i'm enjoying that as well i have a recommendation for you tanya de rosario is a book that i recently read and it is it is called dinner on monster island and huh. she's a horror fan but this, but the book itself is a book of essays about her life, starting when she was 12 huh. years old. And it just moved me. Like, I can't even tell you the impact it, it had on me. So I would I would highly recommend checking it out if you get a minute. I think uh, I will think like it. Dinner so. on Monster Island. That sounds mm -hmm. fantastic. I definitely will. Yeah, it drops on shelves February 6th, I think it is. So, but, okay. uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure you can find your copy of it, but it's really, oh, it's really fantastic. I could not recommend it more. So, all right, Liz, I know you've mentioned you're working on some things. I realize I appreciate maybe you can't talk in great detail about it, but let us know what's next on the horizon for you. 
I am working on a novel called Unspeakable Things, which takes place in mostly in the 1920s in England, in, in Cornwall and London. And it's sort of loosely inspired by Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. And it's a queer love story between two women who go on a killing spree. And it kind of it has the backdrop, the bright young things who are, you know, a, a loosely affiliated group of, of friends and wastrels and, you know, Aristos and, and Bohemian types in London at that era. So it, it, it's fun. And I'm mostly still in the researching phase of that, but I'm going to be within the next week or two just knuckling down. I, I've done some of the work on it and uh, I'm going to dive back into it again. Well, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. So I will definitely make sure I uh, keep an eye on that. Um, <clears throat> okay, last bonus question for you. Uh, I ask this of everyone, and I always have such a great time with it. Uh, I'm going to ask you here on the fly to write a short horror story using only three words. Hmm. Jeez. Wow, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> trying to think. Uh, I guess. How about this? What's this for? Question mark. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Em em <laughs> emphasis on this. <laughs> this. Got it. <laughs> Uh, all right, guys. So the book is called uh, A Haunting on the Hill. It is available everywhere now. And as we always like to say here at Quills and uh, Fields, please support your local bookstores. So Liz, how can our audience find you on social? I am on Facebook. Easy to find is myself. I'm on Twitter or X, whatever it's called, as Liz underscore hand. I'm on Blue Sky, but I don't do that very often. I'm on Instagram, and I don't do that very often. I'm at elizabethhand.com, my website, which I have a wonderful webmistress, but I don't update it very often. I'm just not, you'll see a theme running through this. I'm not, I, I'm less engaged with social media than I should be. So, but I'm very easy to find online and people, you know, People contact me a lot. People find me and, you know, send me emails or we engage in conversations about books and stuff. So if you want to talk about things, yeah, I'm easy to reach. Great. I, I agree with you. I'm not, I should, I'm supposed to be more involved with social media than I am. I find it to be a full-time job in and of itself. And so, yeah, I can totally agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. We appreciate it. And for yeah, the rest of you, you're, yeah, you're so welcome, Rick. It was my pleasure. <laughs> you're an absolute gem. I love it. And for the rest of you, we will see you next time. So take care. Goodbye. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Quills and Chills. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the mysterious and the haunted. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to support us by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review. Because your feedback helps keep those chills running down both our spines. And feel free to share the show with your favorite fellow horror enthusiasts. 
Also, if you guys have any spooky stories, strange encounters, or paranormal experiences of your own, I'd love to hear them. Reach out to me on social media or email me at quillsandchillspodcast at gmail.com. Who knows? Your story might end up on a very special episode. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I will see you back here next time on Quills and Chills. Bye, y'all.